Take any chances. <laughs> 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 All right, so uh, I was going to talk. I was going to say people have some of business they want to bring up or let us know about things. Let you know about things in the end. Somebody. It's a better way anyway. So maybe 10 minutes to 11, someone give me a sign. It never feels exactly right to do sign of business right in the middle. I'd like to start from what Robin says about, isn't that really our fundamental nature? I wanted to talk about a couple of things today. Uh, first of all, if you came after we, after we were sitting, hello, and welcome, and I'm glad you're here. And uh, I, I put out in, uh, in Facebook or Twitter or something in the last days because I've gotten uh, conversant, a little bit conversant in, them in the last few weeks. I'm still a novice at it. It's way complicated. But uh, I put out that uh, we were going to talk about uh, uh, films to Tree of Life and uh, a couple of others, only because I've gone to three movies in the past few days. <laughs> And I thought, first of all, they were all powerful movies. And also, uh, uh, and this is not a movie criticism class, or, uh, but I, if I were going to make the point that there's nothing in the world that isn't Dharma, that we can't do anything really without, it, 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 without seeing it. If you have a certain amount of Dharmic vision, there's nothing that you can see that doesn't come through that way. A lot of you know that I, I like opera very much, and uh, I find it's, uh, and, and I like it uh, nevertheless. I like the talent, I like, I like to see people who have cultivated such an enormous talent to be able to use their very body as an in instrument of making such beautiful music. And, but, the stories that, that uh, are the core of all the operas over time, the ones that endure, are really all the same dharmic stories about the skillful ways to behave and unskillful ways to behave. And right away in the beginning, uh, because you get uh, 
entranced with the, with the characters, I started to think, don't do that. That's going to be an unwise. <laughs> <laughs> don't do that. That's definitely, not, that's definitely not only an expression of suffering, but it's going to lead to more suffering. <laughs> it's painful to see Iago planning his role play, telling his wife to be complicit, or anybody else to see Lear starting to do the wrong thing and be seduced by his own confusion. Romeo comes into the tomb and you're thinking, don't kid yourself now, wait. However <laughs> 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 many times you see it. Don't you have that feeling? However many times you see it. Wait, think it over. Be there a little bit. You know? Things might change, you never know. You can I mean, that's really the thing of great art. Is, you, know, you, keep, you see the same stories. And you see, don't do that, and thankful. So maybe we should, so really I had in mind, uh, because I wanted to say there's no place you can go, there's no, you can get on the Muni bus and look around and think about the first noble truth, how complicated life is for everybody. And you don't even know the people on the Muni bus, but you see that for this person, the bus driver has to lower down a certain ramp to put the wheelchair in, and you know that for them, it's more complicated than the regular person. Or you know, you see some young person stand up and let an older person sit down who has such a relieved face on, and you think to yourself, you know, the value of kindness is infinite. You do the smallest thing, and it makes a difference in somebody else's whole day. There's hardly anything that you can see that isn't a piece of dharma. Well, you go into a, a beautiful supermarket in the morning and you see all the fruits and vegetables and you think, how lucky we are. Look at this and how beautiful nature is. You know, there's always the two sides of things, the, that, the suffering in the world and there's the amazingness of life, you know. But there could be 20 different species of apples, probably much more than that. But you go into any normal supermarket here in Sonoma County and Marin County, there's 10 different species of apples, and all laid out in a beautiful design. And it's so wonderful, you think, how good about life is you can enjoy this. It's like the opera is beautiful, the supermarket is beautiful. If you have the eyes to see it, if you're there for it, you see people, um, Often in, uh, in parking lots of um, shopping centers, I'll be maybe rushing to get to my car and I'm thinking I'm late for something. My mind is not in a congenial mood with myself. I planned wrong how I'll get there on time. It's it really caught up in the trivia of remorse or self-criticism. And I, I see somebody drive up and start to take a... Um, a child with some physical handicap out of the car and put them into some stroller, some wheeling <coughs> device so that they can take it around. And, you know, it's that this child was born with this. Sometimes you can see what something about that dilemma. And here's this parent caring for them not only today, but every day with kindness and, and love. And I, and I think to myself, how could I have done that? Why am I not spending every minute of my day blessing everybody who's getting in and out of every car and doing this and, 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 and being grateful for the fact that I haven't done that? Whoever it was, must have seen on the floor, I didn't see who was having a knee replacement. Are you having a knee replacement, Sarah? When is it happening? A couple of weeks, I don't know exactly. Oh dear, well, I am glad for you that you're able to have it, and sorry about all the people who don't. I actually think about that reflection every time I'm in the dentist, and there's too much apparatus in my mouth. You, ever, you know when, when they're doing something or other that there's too much apparatus in your mouth, especially that block that holds the mouth open while they're doing something for a long time. And it's so uncomfortable because it really your jaw hurts. 
I think, and, you, and the mind starts to make up miserable thoughts about here I am. And I immediately think to myself, here I am, having this procedure done that's going to keep my teeth in my mouth for a little bit longer. And I am, and I try to figure the percentage, I think I am in the zero, point zero 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 one percent of the world, maybe more zeros, who can do preventive teeth work. Not even fixing, restorative, but preventive teeth work in the world. And, and in, a, in a very small percentage of people who can go to the dentist. And a very small percentage of people who heard of dentists and can go to a dentist and can pay for dental care, not only fix it up, therapeutic care, but, but preventive care. And how much in the world people just grow up and get older and lose their teeth, period, all over the world. And I think to myself, how lucky I am. And while I'm thinking that, it doesn't hurt so much to have your jaw. It's another story. You make a bigger frame out of the story. And the mind can do that. And then you make some wishes, may this world be a better place. So that everybody can go to a dentist when they, which is which is really the next step after the next step I think after the mind sees clearly not my mind everybody's mind the next step after the mind sees clearly is some compassionate thought about may everyone have it better in this way or another way. So I really wanted to talk about there's no place that you can be having your teeth, being in the supermarket, being in a shopping center. So I read a book. So I read, I was somewhere or another, I want to tell you about three movies in a book, which I read uh, this week. I read this one since yesterday, and I finished it this morning. It's called Walking the Tiger's Path, A Soldier's Spiritual Journey in Iraq. So it came in the mail. I hadn't ordered it, but... Uh, uh, I guess, no, it's not Shambhala Publications, but it's a, it's a story about, it's a true account written by a man who, I think his age, is now in his 40s. Uh, Paul Kendall deployed with his National Guard uh, unit out of Georgia to Iraq in 2005 hoping to use his knowledge of Middle East to bridge the gap between American soldiers and Iraqi civilians. However, the realities of war quickly challenged his idealism. On a whim, he emailed the Shambhala Buddhist community, finding unexpected guidance in retaining his humanity and compassion as he faced the lethal insanity of war. And it's an incredible story where he just wrote, and he's got an account, all his emails, he wrote an email to the Shambhala International, and the Holy Mother's in here, and it says, look, I'm here in Iraq, and it's terrible, and this is all the stuff that I have to see. And he gets a letter back from a woman named Margaret Newman, who uh, is an administrator for them, not one of the teachers. And very soon after that, he gets uh, an email from uh, Sakyang Mikpam Rinpoche, who is the son of Chogin Trimpa Rinpoche. And so here he is in Iraq, and now he's getting emails from, and he's just a beginning student of Dharma, getting emails from the son of Chogin Trimpa Rinpoche, and he's overwhelmed by that. And he had brought with him, the reason he emailed them to begin with, is he had brought with him when he packed his bags, he said, which of the, which of the books he packed, uh, da, 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 da. he packed, um, I think the Sacred Warrior that he packed, mm -hmm. he said, I was packing my bags to go to Iraq, and I read several of these books, and I took the Sacred Warrior with me, and I started reading it when I was there, then I thought, I need help, and, I, and he, he emailed them, and it's his email correspondence back and forth with them, and in between, long accounts of what he sees and is a part of there. And in the first week that his National Guard unit is deployed there, on two separate incidents, four people each are killed. Mm -hmm. Four of his buddies that he's been training with and that he knows well, eight of them are killed in the first week. And here are all these National Guardsmen mm -hmm. from Georgia and the 
trains for the National Guard, and they get called up. So they're there. And these days, through, uh, through uh, another deployment, and finally has to leave because uh, uh, he's, he, he has an accident that hurts him, that somehow damages it. I think it's Achilles tendon, but he can't be there anymore. He comes back and uh, takes up teaching school, and it, it's a story of his personal life, and things happen in his personal life as well, which he tells that during the time that he's away, his wife meets another man, she ultimately leaves him, so he has a... He has the trauma of the war, the trauma of his marriage ending, needing to figure out how he's going to keep contact with his young sons. And also he has his ongoing correspondence with the people at Shambhala <coughs> International. And he gets a... Um, Sakya, Sakya Nipam has written to me about what to do. So he tells uh, some of his experiences of violent confrontations and terrifyingness. And he, had, he said, the, the Sake had written to me, for if we let, let other people's angers trigger our actions, trigger our own anger, not only will they have stolen our mind, but our dignity as well. They, uh, the, the two men that he was with, the names, he said, their reactions had highlighted to me how easily we can succumb to fury and resentment and lose control of our mental faculties. I could understand their anger, but their breakdowns have showed how it was a trap. A black hole, I or anyone else could easily slide down. The Shambhala meditation teachings I've been learning, called the Tiger's Path of Discernment, reminded me to watch my step. They emphasized not giving in to emotional response but seeing clearly what was going on both inside and outside of yourself so you could recognize the best way to act like a tiger moving through the jungle with strength and sensitivity. I thought that red, I, I had yellow lighted that, overlighted that last sentence because uh, frequently uh, I'm asked, can I give a one sentence definition of mindfulness? What is mindfulness exactly? Uh, and always I say it's the Mindfulness is the full awareness of what's going on out here and what's going on in here in response to what's going on out there. And out of that full awareness, both here and here as well, the discernment of what next action will cause the, will not cause suffering to myself or to anybody else. What discerning what's the next thing to do. It's not a, it's not a passive experience mindfulness. I think sometimes people imagine, maybe because they haven't quite understood the instructions, that it's moment to moment, knowing what's going on, knowing, 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 knowing. But I, I, I think it's so important for myself to include it is knowing along with the intention to respond with cordial and kind and non-harmful, non-suffering causing response that there's enough energy in that knowing, that it's not just knowing, but the energy of the knowing shapes the next moment. One of my early teachers, man, a Burmese monk named Usivali, said to me, every moment of mindfulness conditions the next. It's true that every moment actually conditions the next moment. So a moment of anger conditions an, another moment of anger coming out of it. Anytime you break the, the cycle say, of feel the feeling and act, have the awareness, feel the feeling, and know what to do. This, that, that What it is, is it's a moment of discernment that I think doesn't have to take a long time. It sounds like it would be a long time. Everybody would be moving along very slowly. But you don't have to be very slowly. That there are things that happen, there are things that happen absolutely spontaneously for the good. And you know, that if a car careens around a corner and you're crossing the street, 
You don't say, hmm, God coming, here arising. It happens, don't it? Still, my children are 50 years old, and when I add my seatbelts, but when I put on the brake, this arm comes out. If I brake hard, yes, doesn't it? does. It does. It's a built in reaction. There's nobody here. And that's it. It all falls out. It's a, it, it's a built in reaction of did that. The reaction that gets built in, in I guess, probably all of us, we have reactions built in that are spontaneous that would be better not spontaneous. Like anger arises and we say something improvident or we say something cruel and we flame up whatever kind of a situation. He goes on, Paul Kendall, to say, when I arrived in Iraq, I thought I could somehow stay above these harsh feelings, but I immediately realized that my mental situation was far more fragile that I could collapse just like my colleagues had. Once you begin down that dark path of frustrated hatred, as many war veterans have experienced, it's hard to pull yourself back and regain your dignity and self-control. In the end of the book, he comes back, he meets the Shambhala community in person, He goes to a lecture, he meets uh, um, Pema Chodron, and she has an interview with him, she, she meets him, he's very moved, and uh, then he goes to, a, a, he, she's teaching again, and she quotes him, tells his story, and what she's saying, and asks him to speak, and uh, at one point she tells a story that he had told. She said, when she finished retelling my story, I felt a sense of release. A release from regret over the incident that night in Iraq. He'd, uh, uh, there'd been a boy when they'd been, uh, the, the soldiers had gone into a house and where for some reason they maybe thought there was somebody dangerous and uh, terrified the family when they burst in as, as happens. And there had been a boy who hadn't scurried to safety, and he grabbed him and dragged him out to the street, and the boy was terrified. And when he looked at the boy carefully under the light, he recognized that the boy had Down syndrome and just didn't understand what was going on. And the regret from him plagued him terribly that he had done something like that. On another occasion, he had been so frightened that he actually shot his gun and missed the person that he'd shot, um, who turned out not to be a threat, but he thought he was. You know how you read a story every once in a while about, it's in the police sometimes do it by, by mistake, and you wonder, you know, they're really frightened. It looks like that person is drawing a gun, but maybe they're not. And you shoot somebody, and then you say, I'm sure he's drawing his gun. So he was sure, and he shot, and he missed. He said, when, when Kamachogan finished telling my story, I felt a sense of release, a release from personal regret over the incident that night in Iraq when I had drowned the, that dragged the Down syndrome boy, frightened and whimpering away from his home and family. And I thought about the innocent man standing in the street that I'd shot at and missed. How close he'd come to death because of the poisonous energy of anger and frustration in me. I saw him that day not as a human being, but as a target for releasing my frustration. It's extraordinary to read this. Remember a few months ago I read you, uh, I read to you from uh, a book called At Hell's Gate. Uh, his name is going to come back to me. Thomas Austin. Claude Thomas. Claude Thomas Austin is what his name was. Hmm? 
Ashen. Thank you. Claude Ashen Thomas. Now we've got it. Claude Ashen Thomas. Have you read that? Yeah. It's hugely touching. One of the stories in that, um, part of that story, uh, also a story about a, 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 a Marine, a person who uh, enlists in the Marines because, because really be many causes, but Claude Thomas is raised by a brutal, brutal, brutal father. It's hard to read the story because he is so terribly <coughs> mistreated by his father and his mother. So really, you know, uh, I think it's true for everybody. You know, I, I, maybe some people here, because it's wider than I know, had parents who lost their control because maybe they drank too much or maybe they didn't have control on their emotions. And it's I, Maybe it's particularly hard for me since I was raised by essentially very kind of people um, in a, not during a time of no trouble in the world, even with, with cultural troubles in a, around us, but very kind people who took extremely good care of me. So it's really, um, startling for me to read about people's conditions. Claude Thomas was raised in an absolutely awful way. And uh, his father suggested that he go in the Marines to make a man out of himself. And after the story about his family and the story of the brutal Marine uh, training program, he said, well, I went to, uh, I, I, I volunteered to go to Vietnam in the middle of the fighting because I wanted to kill people. I was so mad, and I killed a lot of people, and I didn't feel bad about it. Uh, they didn't look like people. You know. There was so much pent-up rage. And in that book, he talks about becoming so wounded himself, he's already wounded when he does that, and how he came home a very, very wounded and, and mind person, and addicted to drugs, and with a broken marriages, and and gets saved by, um, essentially, by himself and his own fundamental nature, but also by the good fortune of um, being told, I think, by his social worker, from whom he, who he's seen to, correct, to collect his disability, because he's on SSI, to go to a Thich Nhat Hanh retreat for veterans. He went to a Thich Nhat Hanh retreat for veterans and found people who unequivocally, unequivocally respected him and cared about him, regardless of what he'd done, make you cry a little bit. And then goes, then he, they invite him to go to Plum Village and live there in France and study with him. And he can't afford it, so they pay for him to go. He goes to Plum Village and he ends up taking uh, vows with the Vatican and becoming a monk eventually leaving that community and taking vows with Bernie Glassman, who does the retreats in the, for homeless in the street and on the tracks going into Bergen-Belsen. And now he is still a renunciate monk going around teaching about converting your mind from whatever situation it is into a mind of kindness. Mm -hmm. So how many people saw Buck? I saw it yesterday. Four, five, six. You know, there's nothing I can tell you about it that will spoil it. <laughs> you say, oh, I you can't go because now I know the end. It's, a, it's an hour and a half story, not acted by the people in who are the people of um, a man who's a, uh, um, I, I, I get, he, he was actually hired by Robert Redford to be the coach in Horse Whisperer to teach Robert Redford about how to work with horses and actually was a stand-in, uh, a double for Robert Redford in that, to do some of the stunts in Horse Whisperer. And the movie is actually the documentary. He's talking the whole time. And you see him all the time giving horse clinics in different, uh, different, did you see it ever? I read about it, yeah. Giving horse clinics all over the Midwest and the West, driving there with his 
with his truck and his horse in the back, horses maybe, and you see him giving clinics and talking to horses and teaching people in the same ring with him who bring their horses. It's like you take your dog to dog training. This person, it was <coughs> great that you brought her, by the way. Does she want to say hello? We had a guest today. You want to see her? We take a minute. <laughs> What's her name? Chloe. So Chloe, everyone is very happy that you came. And you can come anytime more. And you were quiet as anything. It was great to have you here. No one even knew you were here. So thank you for bringing her. So he goes to horse clinics and people bring, you know how you take a dog to dog training, people take their horse, the horse training at all levels of training. And it's remarkable to, to listen to how he's talking, he's doing the horse all the time. Other people say, so he says, well, I work with this horse. And then he's talking about how to do, so he stand like this and you wouldn't want to do that because that would be frightening to the horse. So you really want to do this because if you just jump on the horse, the horse is, he said in the beginning, he said the horse is genetically triggered, an enemy of the horse uh, over time is uh, tigers or lions who jump out of somewhere and jump on the horse and grab it by the neck and start biting it. So you don't want to jump on a horse and grab it. You want it to know that you're there, you want it to be needed, and that's giving it giving you permission to get up on it. And all the while he's talking and teaching people how to be with the horse and move with it. And telling his own story during the time of it. So you watch it and it's beautiful horsemanship. And uh, he's beautiful in his non-bravura way of talking about it. He's just talking all the time. It's about you know, a horse has, is just like a person. They respond to how you are. They fear you and they smell you. So in the beginning, you know, if you come in smelling of a McDonald's <coughs> and they know, they say horses have a good, a very good smell, they'll know you're a carnivore. So you have to think about how you smell <laughs> when you go near the horse because you could frighten them. You have to think about that. That the horse can smell you and that they're afraid of carnivores. I never thought about that before. So the, the movie is not only pictures of him leading horses around and showing people how you can eventually get on them and ride them. Uh, but it's, it's interspersed with film clips of him as a young boy because at four, he and he was four, his brother was seven, they were already the rope trick champions of the rope, of the rodeo circuit. And he shows publicity posters that where he and his brother went to do the rope trick business. And he says in a, in a, in a not anguished voice, in a plain voice, he said, and my father was a very brutal man. He taught us the rope tricks, and we were very good at it. And we'd go to a show, and we'd win first place. And when we finished, and we got back to the car, he would beat us both up for not having done it purposely. And on the way home, his rage that we hadn't done it purposely was so great, he'd sometimes stop the car on the way home so he could beat us up again before we got home. It's incredible amount of rage. Ultimately, uh, he gets taken away by the social service that, that understands it. By the time he's in high school, he goes through this for years and puts up with it. And finally it becomes clear that he's being brutalized at home and the social service takes him away. The coach in the, in yeah, the in P.E. He wouldn't take off his clothes in P.E. to take a shower. Mm -hmm. And so they discover that he's all beat up. So they take him away and they give him to foster parents. And in the very end, when come up to now, you know, and uh, his family is on the movie and they talk about it. And the woman who's his foster mother, who's a little old woman, talks about it. And it's very touching. But he says things like, I live in the moment. Um, 
You don't need to keep on living in the past. First of all, who doesn't know that? But who does that? <laughs> who has been so severely traumatized? Because you don't need to keep on living in the past. The past is the past. Now is now. He said, I figured that out for myself. And I don't want to have a brutal life. And he's like so gentle and so extremely sensitive to the needs of the animals. And He try, well, he, someone brings him an extraordinarily difficult horse, uh, a horse that's really wild, that she hasn't brutalized in the way that sometimes people brutalize a horse in training. But in essence, she has, by uh, allowing it to grow up in, um, in her ranch with 14 other stud male horses that she hasn't fixed for whatever reason, and it's a wild way to live. And the horse is uh, essentially untrainable. He won't let anybody, he's never let anybody get on him because she's brought him to the clinic. And he tries and in his first go around, manages to get the, the horse a little bit, a little bit calmed down and responsive, let you walk by him. And then he has his helper, who's his you know, sort of next first assistant, in the next uh, session with that horse, get on it. And the horse attacks him and bites him and throws him off. And the person really hurt and bleeding. It's quite a dramatic part. And the woman who owns the horse becomes clear that the horse is going to have to be put down because it's not a horse that can be trained. And he stands in quite an, in a dispassionate way. He talks to her about how cruel it was for her to, for whatever reasons she had, not take care of this horse's problem earlier. She says, it's not a good parent who doesn't set limits to the child. You have to, you have, you have to be kind to it, but you have to show them how to be. And it wasn't, it wasn't kind of you not to show them. Well, I, I, by the way, I was writing notes in the movies in the dark. He said, you know, it was like his own life a little bit. He'd been brutalized by his parents, but by his father. He said, but someone has to show you a different path. I said, that's a great line. I was thinking of he went to live with these incredibly kind people that uh, Claude Thomas met the Dalai Lama. First, he met his social worker. Well, if he didn't show up for his appointments, we'd call him up and say, where are you? Please come in. Not, oh, he didn't show up. Please come in. And that he met Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, my best story out of that book is when he went to Plum Village, he was still so shell-shocked from being on the alert that someone will attack you that uh, there were dormitories for people to live in, and he couldn't, he was too frightened to lie down in the dormitory with other people. So he built himself a bivouac out in the, in the, in the forest, you know, just adjacent to the camp place where the residence places were. And he built himself a little lean-to, and he had a tent, and he had a sleeping bag in it. And that wasn't enough to keep him comfortable, so he, uh, booby-trapped the area by running a wire around a bunch of uh, trees so that if anybody came in the night to be after him, they'd trip and fall down. He's living out there for some weeks, maybe months, I don't know how long he says in the book. He said, but after a while, he relaxed enough and he became confident enough to uh, take down the wire. He went to talk to... Um, I think it's just a fun, it wasn't Thich Nhat Hanh himself, it was one of the nuns that supports his uh, community there. And uh, he confesses that he had been too frightened to move into the residence halls. But he wants to tell her that now he's no longer too frightened. He, he can, I don't remember if he says I can move into the residence halls, but he said, you know, I feel embarrassed about the fact everybody here is so kind and so gentle. And I put up that wire because I was afraid. So I just want to tell you, I took it down. And she said, that's very good. I'm glad that you did. But 
keep in mind that you have, if you ever want to put it up again, you can do it. And I, that was the one line out of the whole book that I came up with. It is completely all right for you to take care of yourself, whatever you need. That's so amazing. Who tells us that? And that's so expensive. So that horse has to get put down. So he speaks to this woman, really, in very clear terms about what could you have been thinking. And I think it's really important for you to think about what this means about you, because how you treat your animals is really, in some way, a mirror of how you treat yourself. And there's some reason that you didn't do the right thing by this horse previously. And what are you doing with 14 stud horses? Anyway, and I really think that you should think about this. And he says it's all in a very dispassionate voice, but you can see he's serious. He's serious, strong, serious. Not, not, and you can see he's a certain amount of heat about, but it's not, not at all vindictive or accusatory. Just, I really think you should think about what it is in you you see the woman in the meantime is crying and she says he's right he's right and then uh he said and i wrote this down in the dark he said uh about uh I, he said i would never hold anyone responsible for how their life has been up to now it's such a it's such a statement of karma Things happen to people, and then they behave this way or that way. So how they are up to now. And then now, you know, something else. That may have been when he said that other line about someone has to show you a different path. So he's telling her a different path. So now she's often doing, yeah. Yeah, that's one of the best things I did all summer to see that movie. Yeah. And I thought about it for hours and hours and weeks, and I talked to people. And I guess the bottom line for me, for some wonderful reason, he had the wisdom to treat all people and animals the opposite of the way he was treated. He did. With all this respect. And it just makes me feel wonderful. It's a, what's your name? Bertie. Bertie. So Bertie, just because I'm the tape, might not have picked you up. Bertie said that um, the whole summer, she saw that movie early in the summer, and it was the, the most important event. A most important event in that summer, thinking, thinking about not holding anybody in contempt for whatever has happened before and being kind to everyone. The absolute opposite of how he was treated. Absolute opposite. And it's as if he looked around with wisdom that you think has got to be well, grace and also the fact that he had those foster parents and also part of him. But that was awakened when he, when he said that, that, that it somehow, say it again at the end of your sentence, that he behaved the absolute opposite of how he had been treated. You know, I'm in the therapy world, and what I know is day in and day out, people protect Yeah. They end up treating people the way they were treated. You know, it's, it's just kind of happening. It's smelling up their fault. Yeah. But how he got it together, and I think he probably got it together when he was 14. He goes the other way. Well, we not only end up treating other people, even unbeknownst to us, unbeknownst to us when we're in therapy, we find out, goodness, I'm doing the same thing to my children and my partner <coughs> as was done to me. And I wouldn't have wanted, and consciously I wouldn't have wanted to do it, but I don't know what, clearly you don't know another way, so you do it in a different way. Not only that second part, but the first part of telling, telling and retelling your story so that it becomes a self-fulfilling, perpetuating story. I am the way I am because my parents uh, were this way or that way. And so that's it. My parents were this way and that way and this way. Uh, and he apparently, not exactly this words, but managed to say, this has not happened to me. I'm not going to be that way. I'm not doing that. And that, that's so, for me, ennobling of spirit that we can decide that doesn't work. I mean, it's like monumental wisdom. This is a way that doesn't work. I'm going to do 
Because by the way, did you have another thing to say? Yeah, another thing I wanted to write was that I happened to have gone to the film the day he was there. Whoa. I didn't even know. So I was walking <laughs> with my husband. There's no seats. I mean, it was this, this whole crowd of people, and so he talked afterwards. And one of the questions was, so what happened to your brother? Yeah. And his brother made the right decision, too. Oh. His brother was not a horse person. He went somewhere else that lives in the Midwest, and he's married, and his kids, and he's okay. Yeah. It's, a, it's an amazing story. It's an amazing story. It stays with you. It stays with you. It haunts you afterwards. So if you haven't seen it, uh, I think today is the last day in the week. No, tomorrow might be the last day in the week. Is it the same But, you know, it, the book is called... Believe. I think it's so important to see this film, though, because you see it. It's amazing to watch because you really see the vibe of this person. You can feel the vibe of that person. I'm so glad you saw him in person. He and his brother, when they were the rope champions, were spokespeople for some cereal, like Wheaties or something or other. My, my children actually, who are now 50-year-old adults, we went to the movie. It's how we remember him. We remember him being in the... On the, on the cartoons and on the children's programs. You know, when he spoke um, to the woman, <coughs> I still remember and feel that tone of voice that he used that you knew he meant business. Yeah. It was with kindness, but he was saying, you know, please get your life in order. Please get your life in order. And he had the feeling that she was going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, there was one more piece of story of that. Maybe we won't talk about Tree of Life today. Maybe oh, okay. <laughs> this is an important piece, though. This is the one more piece, giant piece of important. Then we'll talk about You'll tell me about Tree of Life. I'm a little mystified. So, uh, maybe that's why I was talking so long about Buck, because I'm not mystified. But okay. It, but here's the other piece. Uh, you remind me if I'm getting this right. Uh, at some point, he actually meets his father years later. Is this true? He said, "Meet my father," and he's and uh, he looked at me and he said, "I," you know, goes over to his truck to get something for him. Uh, you tell me if I'm telling this right. Uh, and he's wary, you know, because he said, "I'm, you know, I'm like a horse, you know. If you can't trust somebody, you don't trust them that easily." Even though I was older at that point. So my father went over to his truck and he came back and he gave me a pair of gloves, of, of leather gloves, you know, riding gloves. And he said, here, I think you could use these. And um, he said, and since that time, I forgave my father. Mm -hmm. I think that was his foster father. Who gave him the gloves? Yeah, that's what I thought. Mm -hmm. His foster well, father. adoptive people gave him the gloves. I thought the step... The stepfather gave the father? The foster else, not his father. The but not his father. Adopted, After he yeah. was adopted. That was how he sort of okay. started to bond oh. with the... That's right, a horse trainer. Oh, okay. Came All right. as, uh, per perfect, perfect. Because I actually was busy trying to ride my dog. <laughs> and I just had to change. And I thought, wow, with his father, that was big. But somebody else did huge act of kindness. Somebody who trained horses and from whom he learned the whole method of kindness. It was his foster father who he learned this is what it's supposed father. to be. All right, I got that part right. Yeah. I'm so busy trying to write the last part, I missed that part. Thank you very much. Do you always take a notebook into a movie <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I'm just curious. No, I don't know always, but I do if I think I'm going to need it. <laughs> I have taken a lot of notes in a lot of movies. Because um, I forget so much in a movie. That's so why I take it. Then I have to go home and see if I can read it. But that, so then, so then there really is a link, like with Sister Fong or with Thich Hanh. Somebody does a, an enormous act of kindness, or well, what's felt as to be an enormous act of kindness, because the next line after he gave me the gloves is we then dug fence posts for the rest of the afternoon together, and I didn't wear the gloves because I didn't want to use them up on a fence post. But how many people are going to go see Buck? 
I go see it again. It's beautiful to see. It's beautiful to see. So let's talk a little bit about Tree of Life because I saw that also in the last two days. And what do you think about it? There you go. I was very open to the idea of it, and I usually love movies like that. But for me, it was too thin on story. I really wanted to see the sun. I wanted to know how he died. I wanted to know uh, more stuff about it. And the interludes of like computer graphics, I thought were beautiful. Again, I'm open to that kind of stuff, but it was too long for me. It got a little boring. And I wanted to know more about what made them tick. And on the good side, I thought the depiction of the era, which I know personally was spot on, mm -hmm. that they really got it good, which is rare. Um, and, you know, I like many parts of it, and yet it was, I wanted more. It was just too much ex uh, stuff that what didn't mean enough. All right, so what did other people think? Can you tell us what it is? <laughs> Tree of Life, what the movie is? Yeah. movie is Tree of Life. The, the director is a man named Malik, who has, uh, who has made not so many films, yeah. but uh, some of them quite noteworthy. According, I read a bunch of reviews about it. What do you want to say, Mark? Mine's the stupidest movie I've seen in <laughs> <laughs> You know what that is, we're going to hear more. But uh, I, I want to tell you, if you read the review in the, um, in the New Yorker, you can go online, New Yorker Review of Tree of Life. It will say, sometimes people get the impression that because a movie took eight years to make, that it absolutely must have tremendous artistic value. But suggesting that this one actually didn't have that great of an artistic value. But maybe Barbara thinks otherwise. No. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> I walked out. I never looked oh. at my watch so much during a movie wow. mm -hmm. yeah. as I did in that. And I was with a friend. And when I wasn't looking at my watch, she was looking at oh, wow. That said, when I left, I felt that the director, writer, and I thought it was a bad joke they played on moviegoers. That my theory is that the director, writer, and producer, they got together and said, let's see if we can do kind of an artsy-fartsy, a spiritual, an ethereal, we'll put in a little abuse, we'll have them walking around in heaven looking stone, and we'll make it look really deep, but, it is but it'll be this thing they just made and we'll make a lot of money. I felt it was a bad joke on moviegoers. It, the Emperor's New Clothes, in other words. Yeah. The Emperor's New Clothes, mm -hmm. so Amara. I agree exactly with what you oh. said. And I don't generally read reviews before I go to a movie because I want to make my own opinion. But the one thing that I read that really helped me was that it's visually stunning, mm -hmm. but don't try to figure it out because mm -hmm. there's nothing to figure out. And that really helped because, and the friend I went with afterwards, I told her that, and she said, I wish you would have told me that ahead of time. I've been trying to figure it out the whole time, and I hated it. It was so boring, and it was so long. I mean, it really was stunning. And it was a perfect 50s piece. But boy, it sure didn't feel, I sort of felt used. Yeah. Oh, well, I, I, I'll yeah. tell you right away what I thought. What did anybody else think? Yeah. I thought the depiction of the family life was very moving, yeah. and that Brad Pitt, his struggle as a father was also very amazing in the acting, but I agree completely. I wanted to leave, and then my son, who's a movie buff in D.C., sent me an article and said more people had walked out of that movie yeah. than a lot of other movies. You know. That's very interesting. I, th I think that many people walk out because it's, it's uh, among other things, some it's boring. But it's also painful. It's painful. It's unremittingly painful. If you had to make a Dharma lesson out of it. Okay, let's make a one sentence Dharma lesson out of it. Don't go. Don't go. 
<laughs> I don't know. What's the moral of the story? If you can figure out any moral of that story, I was thinking people struggle that we can survive. Well, that's not that's not so clear. Somewhere in the survivor. I was thinking more about every individual is heir to their own karma. That to whatever degree anybody did have a personality, they weren't very filled out. You know, the, the character of the mother is not very filled out. She's very stereotypical, 1952. But but she's you don't have you know how did she? It's a it's a little bit there's there's, there's nothing in her. Actually, one of the reviewers said you have to notice that. Um, Nobody has a first name. You never know what the mother's name is or the father's name. They just. I was thinking that every individual is heir to their own karma. Um, that 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 I was thinking about it with Buck together. That that here's uh, his father who's wrathful, does terrible things in terms of abusing his sons. Uh, and if you if you see it just you think well that's a terrible person and I don't like them at all. Then in the few scenes where he makes you privy to his own sense of frustration and disappointment, he could have had a career as a musician. He feels he doesn't. He, he, and in some of the voiceovers, it was really hard to hear that half the movie because some of the artsy parts of it is that you hear people's thoughts because they're oh, yeah. whispered. And anybody with a hearing disability is lost. It a whispering thing. It's like, why aren't you doing something about him, God? But, but that there are moments where you feel like that father is having those explosive angers. He's not deciding to beat up his children. It happens because he can't do otherwise. You know, it's one of those views where uh, I'm trying to find it. I, can, I never hold anybody responsible for how their life has been up to then. That they don't know another way. And I was thinking about uh, the the people in the, in the book about um, about Iraq. That everyone is making their way through the, this life the only way they can, given the equipment they have. And that that father didn't have good equipment. The mother didn't have good equipment. You keep feeling, why doesn't the mother speak up? Why doesn't she do something about this? But the, the sense that nobody can do anything that they don't know about being able to do, maybe that was it. You have to know another way. You don't know another way. You kind of stumble your way through life, hurting everybody. But yeah, there you go, Carol. Susie, sorry. I want to know if the third movie is Sarah's Key. Did you see Sarah's Key? Mm -hmm. No, I didn't see Sarah's Key. I saw the. Um, oh, is that a movie now? Yes. Yeah. It was a book for a long time. Did you see it? It's still a book. Did you like it? It was one of the best um, adaptations of a book I've ever seen. Yeah. Sarah's Key. It's a very sad story. I read the book. Beautiful. Beautiful film. Uh, beautiful film. Well, in the last minute, the other film is uh, The Whistleblowers, which um, I wouldn't say it's a great film. I didn't think the acting was great, although some of the reviewers did. But the story is unnerving. The story is about, and the story is true. The story is about a woman police officer who, for complicated reasons of needing a job, takes on a job working in Bosnia with the UN peacekeeping forces <coughs> as part of the peacekeeping force and discovers the trafficking in uh, sex trafficking of young women and discovers not only the sex trafficking but that uh, the um, it's being really underwritten by the uh, occupying forces that are supposed to be keeping the peace who are actually setting up these uh, bars and the brothels and uh, helping in the abduction and cover covering up, the, protecting the people who are uh, running these enterprises and getting a share of the take and uh, 
I seriously, I thought you wouldn't get out alive, but you did. And in the end, it says uh, the people involved, um, some of the people involved were uh, uh, discharged from military. Nobody has been prosecuted. That's the end of the movie. And then it says two and a half million women in the world are involved in being sex trafficked at this point. It's a stunning thing. It's, a, it's really strange, and uh, there's Roz and I'd have to say something. And I always plan to end on something hopeful, either 10 minutes to 11. I think the hopeful thing is that those are movies, and they're out there, and people know about it. And my big uh, hope for the future, so fired up, I can't say this enough, so fired up by modern technology as witness the Arab Spring and everybody saying, let's liberate ourselves, and country after country having liberation movements, that I really think that education and really letting people be privy to what's wrong in the world rather than demoralizing people, has to eventually make a generation of people, I hope it's us, but definitely in half the world is under 30. Young people have a whole life to do to, start, to suddenly start to say to each other, let's finish, let's not do that anymore, let's change things. What are we going to say, Ed? Well, that the story that you're telling is not very different from the one in Contra Costa County with the drug officers who set up uh, prostitution, set up using women, using, making huge amounts of money apparently off of the drugs that they were supposed to be uh, controlling, yeah. Yeah. but they were using the, the, the whole situation to make their selfish money. So, and let's see what Roz wanted to say the same. No, I want to recommend a film for next discussion called Another Earth. Oh, Is it out around now? Yes. Another Earth? Another Earth. And it would be an interesting discussion. Thumbs up. Thumbs up, Gary. Thumbs up. Thumbs up, says Roz. Okay. And I just want to add. Um, it didn't come into the theaters because it was on HBO, but it is out on DVD called Temple Grandin. Oh, and it reminds me of the Buck story, and it's true, and it's an incredible, uplifting, and amazing story of a woman with autism who becomes a real um, <coughs> champion for uh, cattle and slaughterhouses, and that changes the way that it's done. So she is amazing. She's still living, and it, it was yeah, phenomenal. I read a book. She's going to yeah. be here at a, at a Echo Fest over a Labor Day weekend on Sunday. So please let us know. Ross, what's the name of the movie? Another Earth. Another Earth. So I have one more thing to say, if you can stand to be here one more minute. Don't get up and run. I, I'm, I have vowed that from here on in, since I have done serious putting out of the Sangha of Thousands of Buddhas that I'm not going to carry on at great length on every single class about please join the Sangha of Thousands of Buddhas. And just do it briefly. Please join the Sangha of Thousands of Buddhas. A whole color. I could tell you the whole, the whole story about it. But the short story is, if you join it, then you will be pledging to Spirit Rock 27.70 a month for 36 months. At the end of 36 months, you will have given Spirit Rock, I think in a fairly painless way, $1,000. It's a formidable amount, but I think that this is a, a, a way that there, most people can do it. People are joining, uh, and we I really anticipate that two, maybe 3,000 people will do it, which would be the money that we need to really put us over the top for this next bit of replacing the buildings here on the lower part of the campus that has to happen. In my hands, I have uh, six, one, two whole kits and three plain papers for taking them home and mailing them in. The other thing you can do is go online and check out www.thousandsofbuddhas.org you can read my impassioned speech there. <laughs> uh, you can uh, click on donate now, join now. 
you get the pleasure of joining. You get a pin like this. You get a book in the mail signed by me. You get access to a once a month group phone call, a conference call with me and probably Jack or Guy in two weeks at noon on Wednesday in two weeks and once a month from there on. And you get to come to quarterly Sangha of Thousands of Buddhas parties. The most important thing you do is join. And it's 87 cents a day. What can I say? More than that. The message we have to put out in the world is worthwhile. Uh, by the way, think about this because I'm in the middle of trying to plan it. Tricycle Magazine, Sambal Sun Magazine, is going to put this up on their website because they feel, as I do, that it is as important for the entire worldwide Buddhist community to support this as for us. Because it's not just nice for the people who live here. We're not building this for us. We're building this for the message that's going out in the world. So the Shambhala Sun is going to put it up on their website. Tricycle says, well, we won't go and do it the same way. How about if we, you record, we'll get you a videographer, record four 15-minute um, uh, Dharma talks. And we'll put them up uh, in a couple of months uh, through the Tricycle website. And you can say, as well, they'll be free for people to watch. And there'll be a little notice about, check out the thousands of Buddhas and join that way. Because they think it's a worthwhile, worldwide thing to do. So what I'm asking you is, if we do this sometime in September, and they, I arrange with them a videographer, I would like about 20 people for a morning of videoing, say up in the council house. So I'm not just talking into a, a camera, but I'd like to have a room full of people who are actually there and who could maybe ask questions on camera. So to have it in your mind, how many people might... We do have pins today. We do have and pins. And we do have even more. Even more. Mm -hmm. Why don't you do me a favor and yeah. just pass them out. Take them on to you, show them to your neighbors. Honestly, I am, I am such a not fundraiser. I am a community organizer. Honestly, there's a very big difference. I told that to my friend Jack, he said, you're Barack Obama. I said, really? I am a community organizer. I really think that as much as collecting pledges, I really want to collect community that can get together, plan actions, go to protest marches, write the letters we want to write. As it is, people just come to Spirit Rock, they don't join it. I want you to join it. This is membership. So that's what it is. Please take that home and think about your rest of your family and your neighbors one side or the other. Tell them the world depends on it because it does. Okay, for the merit that we accrue from being here together and combining our passion and our insight and our wisdom in supporting each other, may we go out from here refreshed in our zeal to be the kind of people that we can all of us transform into being, and may our very presence in the world make this a different place for everyone in the world to live. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.